0: Hello Life Changers, thank you so much for joining us. We have got an amazing sermon for you, so why don't you lean in, grab a notebook, grab a pen, and get ready to hear of the more that God has for us. So, I would love just to uh, take a little bit of a journey tonight. I really love the privilege of preaching. It's, it's probably one of my greatest joys in life that I get to open the Word of God, and I take it as a huge responsibility. But in a sense, I know that my preaching can only do so much. In a sense, I'm almost like, as the Scriptures will say, I'm, I'm a doorkeeper. And maybe that's foreign language for you, but a doorkeeper in the Scripture language is somebody who stood at the door of the temple and the door of the, the meeting place of God and would just hold the door open so that people would be able to come in and encounter God. And I, I would love just in a sense tonight just to hold the door open for you through the Scriptures to encounter Jesus, to see Him more clearly, not to leave going, Wow, that was a great preach. I will try my best to make it good. But I pray that you'll leave going, I just got to see Jesus more clearly for my life, for my marriage, for this church, for the, my job, for this city, for my calling. And I pray that for you and I. So th- I want to take us on a bit of a journey. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament, there's this narrative, there's this incredible story about how God's presence would dwell with His people. And uh, we get to the, the, the crux of it, is that, that God's presence was contained in a, in a, in a, or, or situated in a place called the Ark of the Covenant, and it was this a glorified box that God spoke to Moses and the people in the wilderness, that this, my, my presence will go with you, and that where you go, you must take my presence, and where I go, you must follow my presence. And, and it was in this space called the tabernacle, then later into the temple. And as you fast forward the narrative, um, you we really find that under a man named Saul, King Saul, that they, they lose the Ark of the Covenant. Not, not lose it like, where do we put it? No, but in a sense of in a battle, the Philistines came and, 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 and waged war against them and won a victory. And they took the Ark of the Covenant along with the spoils. And, and, and it, got, it got lost in the way and, and just got thrown on the side and disregarded. And for, for over a couple decades, the people of God failed to even go look for it. They carried on as business as usual. The presence of God had physically left their gatherings as a people. The thing that made who they were who they were, the presence of God had left them. And they just... Didn't even go and ask about it. They didn't worry about it. They just carried on. It was economics, business as usual. And what an indictment about the people of God. But I often will say, what an indictment about me, because I feel that I too can often live like that. Just carry on with another Monday, another Tuesday, another Wednesday, not really concerned around that actually I was supposed to build my whole life, my every existence, a moment around the presence of God. But that aside, King David comes, a man after God's own heart. And one of the first things he does is he inquires of the ark. Where is the presence of God? Why is it not here with us? Why is it not in the midst of his people? So he goes to a place called, and the the, the ark of the covenant has been in a man named Abinadab's house. I'll tell you that five times fast. Abinadab. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate that. A bit of Dab's house, and and his sons, and one of them called Uzzah, and it's also there in their house. It's almost also been disregarded, just a fixture in the home. But David goes with thirty thousand men. You know, the presence of God means a lot to a guy when he pitches up at your house with thirty thousand people. Da da da. How's it? There's a box we want. And they go and get it. But even in this process, there's a bit of an arrogance, a bit of a, uh, we just want to get this back. We've got to make it happen, a plan, and, and, and man's agenda and man's uh, muscle power, trying to get the presence of God back. So they go and they get the Ark of the Covenant. They put it on an ox cart. They put it on a cart that's supposed to carry it back all the way back to Jerusalem. But that has been expressly forbidden in the book of Leviticus. It's been told that actually, no, don't put it on an ox cart, that actually the priestly people, the Levites, were supposed to carry the Ark on their shoulders. But actually, David goes, no, we just got to get in and make a plan. And often we do that. We try and make a plan. We suddenly feel, ah, oh, I'm missing the presence of God in my life. I've got to make a plan. I've got to get back to church. I've got to start doing these things and that thing. And actually, God said, Don't wait, but there's a way. I'm, I'm after your hearts. I'm not after you just to make a, a, a quick plan. But this reality is he goes, he gets it. And the story goes, they're taking the, the Ark of the, the Covenant back. And there. there was quite a jubilation in the, in the, crew, in the crew, the 30,000 and then it hits a bit of a speed bump. The ark starts to topple over, and one and Abinadab's son Uzzah is with him. Uzzah, just a cool name. It's an action hero name. And uh, Uzzah starts to, and as he sees that the ark is about to fall, he tries to steady it and touches it and holds it to hold it in place. But he, it's been forbidden for anybody else to touch the ark. So as soon as he touches it to try and hold it in place, he is struck down dead by God. Boom. God's not messing around with the presence of God. This is no joke here, and it freaks David out. Can I be honest? I understand totally what David is feeling in that moment. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is, we're playing with the big boys now. And uh, and David, in the moment, in his in his fear, says, actually, they just leave it in place. They're like, we, this is too big for us, and they back off. They leave the ark there, and they leave it at the man named Obed-Edom's house. It's at this location. Obed-Edom takes that ark into his home, and they and his family say they just almost look after. And David goes back, back to his business. Stick with me, people. We're going somewhere tonight. But the amazing thing is, as the Scripture will tell us, in in a brief few verses, it says that the Ark of the Covenant stayed at Obed-Edom's house for three months. And it says that Obed-Edom, though, had a different spirit about him. He actually honored the presence of God. He wasn't flippant about it. He wasn't just using it, just, oh, where is it? He honored it. And it says that his home was blessed says his children were blessed. He had a lineage that were just profound and blessed in every single area of their life. They were blessed so profusely that actually news reached David's ears that Obed-Edom was being ridiculously blessed because the presence of God was in his house. So three months later, David's like, I think we should get that thing back to the temple. So this time, David goes, and this time it's a little bit different. David then goes and they follow to the law and they walk from Obed Edom's house all the way to Jerusalem. And this is how it goes every six steps they take, the priesthood takes every six steps with the ark on the shoulders. They stop and they slaughter a bull. Now, bulls were expensive in those days, people. Still are, I'm, I'm told. But they were very expensive. That's basically like a, your, your Mercedes S Class. Every six steps, just taking a Mercedes and smashing it. Very expensive journey from Obed-Edom's house to the temple. Every six steps. And it's this incredible procession. And, and they get closer and closer to the temple. And eventually they take the, the Ark of the Covenant and gets back to the temple. But I, I, don't want to, I don't want to digress. I want to tell you about this man, Obed-Edom. The next time you see his little name, Obed-Edom, pitch up, is a little bit later in the book of Chronicles. We find that Obed-Edom has moved his house and his family to the temple. And his whole family, him and his sons, have become doorkeepers in the house of God. Because they have encountered the presence of God so much, they said, we cannot live away from that. We need to spend, I will give everything. In the moment, a lowly position, a doorkeeper is a lowly position. Just someone who opens the door for people to encounter the presence of God. But he said, I'll give my life to do that because I've tasted something so beautiful. And that's where the psalmist would write, he wrote this, this thing, he said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Than live, Then I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the presence of God, live with that agenda than, than get all the promotions. I'd rather, I'd give up every relationship, i will give up every agenda just f- for that. There's a radical reality. And I really believe that God is calling us in this season to remind us that we are doorkeepers of the presence of God. That when you walk into your office and when you walk into your home, when you meet people on the streets, when you encounter people, you are a doorkeeper. You are the way that, that actually the new covenant tells us no longer, the presence is not in a box, that actually he's put his presence inside of us. That our lives are supposed to be open for people to encounter him. So with that in, uh, as a premise, that was the intro, people. <laughs> Welcome to preaching on a Sunday night. We flip our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. And Mark chapter 2 is this incredible reality, and I love the book of Mark, but I love, Mark is one of the four Gospels, and uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, before we read the text, before we get to that, Kath, is in in the book of Matthew starts with reminding us about Jesus' genealogy, his family lineage, and it's this long line of of not such good people. It's not the blessed good, it's the blessed bad. It's the good, the bad, the ugly, all in this list, but actually it's the profound reality that Jesus, out of the very, that lineage, the life of God comes. And Matthew is shouting from page one that no matter how debaucherous your backstory is, God will always have the final say. And I love that encouragement. I love the book of Luke. The book of Luke starts by telling us about the political despot Herod that is overseeing the people of Israel, that they're under Roman oppressive rule, and he is squashing them, and their way of life is being being fixated and, and formed and fashioned by a Roman government, and they're under political oppression. But I love the fact that Luke starts that, and then in the next scene is we find that Mary, a virgin, falls pregnant with the life of God, and I'm reminded that no matter what the political situation is going on, the life of God can always intervene in that story. I love the book of John. The book of John starts off on page one by saying that in the beginning was the Word, and says, and the Word came into the darkness, and the darkness could not understand it. It's this prophetic literature that says that the, the life of God came and pierced the darkness, and page one of John reminds me, no matter how dark your life feels, how, no matter how wicked you feel, no matter how d- depressed you feel, no matter how anxious, no matter how that, that diagnosis of your life or situation or that, uh, that moment in your, in your relationships feel, it says, my light will over, always overcome it. I love these incredible intros to this book, but then I love the book of Mark as well, because the, Mark, the book of Mark is like my type of book. It's much shorter than the other three. It's like the ADHD gospel. Because Mark is like, yeah, I like, your, I like your family lineages, I like your political de- description, I like your big the- prophetic theology, but I, I want to sidestep the nativity, I want to sidestep baby Jesus, six pounds, sweet baby Jesus. I want, Mark starts on page one with full-grown, name-taking, doors kicking down Jesus, miracles. That's who Mark is, he starts on page one, Jesus, boom, 33, let's go. And I love the book of Mark, but this is the incredible reality that actually when we look at Matthew, Luke, and John, we see this narrative, if you want to ask, who am I? If you're battling with questions, who am I? You've got a book of Matthew, Can you can locate that no matter who, where I've lost my way, Jesus still will have his final say. If you're battling with the question, what in the earth is going on in this world? What is happening in America? What is happening in the political world with Ukraine and Russia? What is happening in Saudi Arabia and with the, the murderous regime? What is happening here in South Africa with corruption? I just want out. I don't know where to go. Am I left-leaning or right-leaning? I just don't know. It's all crazy. And you're saying, what in the world is going on? I go to the book of Luke and I remind myself, whatever's happening in the political, God's kingdom is coming. Maybe you're battling with, what, what, where is God. And you're thinking in your life, you've just lost somebody, and you're like, I can't make sense of my life, or you just lost a job, or, or you're feeling that you got that diagnosis that just wrecked your world. And you say, where is God? You go to the book of John that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the darkness could not understand it. The Bible just always speaks straight to and answers every question. And I love the book of Mark that's answering a different question tonight, and we'll link all of this together, so stick with me. Chapter 2, Jesus is returning home now to Capernaum. And I love this reality. And let's read it together. Mark chapter 2. Verse 1 starts this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house we were staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. I love that reality when you realize that this room is so full. It gives new, new understanding to the words full house. Forget the 90s comedy show with the the two twins playing one role. Anybody remember that show? Anyway, thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. Wrong crowd, remember. Say shows that we're in the 2000s. I apologize, everybody. But gives new meaning to the words full house. When I think of this situation, you've got it's a house. Jesus is there, and the house is so full. There's no room. Two people per chair. The couches are sagging under the weight of the people. There's people on the kitchen counter. There's people peering into the windows trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And this is the reality, that this has always been God's desire, that his house would be full. That is why we planted this church, is because we believe there are more people that need to encounter Jesus. Not because we need to do more services, no, no, it's because we wanted people to, who are far from God to encounter him. Jesus, Jesus himself tells a parable in Luke 14 about a great feast, and he says the kingdom of God is like this feast where he sends out his servants in the highways and the byways to go and invite people into the feast. And he initially goes, he invites all those with a pedigree. Everyone who has a great family background, he invites all those with political clout, He invites all those with the the religious elite to to come on in. But all of these these high-level people refused and made excuses and said, no, we're too busy. We can't come to the feast. So then the, the, the parable goes on and says, the master said to the servant, okay, then I want you to go into the back alleys. I want you to go and find and down the, the corridors of the world. I want you to go to the lost, the last, and the least. I want you to go to the people who have no names, people who have no titles, people who have no status, and I want you to invite those people in. If they're not going to come, I want you to go and find those people who don't deserve it. They should come to the feast and eat. And the reason why is says, so that my house will be full. Oh, I pray, and I'm longing for this room to be full of people. Not because I've got some, uh, some illusion of grandeur. No, no, because I believe that is God's heart. He wants his house to be full. He wants people to encounter him. Let's keep reading, because we will never get through this otherwise. While he was preaching God's words to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on the mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat and walk. So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. My prayer for our meetings on Sunday nights here is that people will leave knocking, Wow, that was lovely worship. Wow, that was a great preach. Mm, the Billingtons made good coffee tonight. Boom, fist bump for the third row. All those things we want to do with excellence, but I pray that we'll start to have the encounters with Jesus, not just here on Sunday, but in our weeks, when we meet people and we become doorkeepers to the presence of God and show people a greater glimpse of Jesus, that people say, we've never seen anything like that before. Let's pray quickly. Father, I pray for a few moments left together. Would you encourage our hearts by your word? Strengthen our hearts by your word? Would you heal our hearts by your word? Would you envision our hearts by your word? Would we have a greater glimpse of you, Jesus, as we open that door wide, And as we as a people refuse not just to stand on the outside, but we step in to what you are doing. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. From the scripture, very quickly, three things that I believe that we do is we open the doors wide for people to encounter the presence of God. Here on Sundays and through our lives and our workspaces during the week. Number one, we find that when we open the door wide, prodigals start to come home. Prodigals, people who are so far off, off people who have been so written off, people who have been so forgotten start to come home. I love that text. It says four men. It was so full, the house, that it said that they, there was these four men who had a paralyzed friend, and they couldn't even get in through the front door. The ticket sales were done. There was no more tickets to be sold. They couldn't get in. There was, just, there was no way physically through. And the Bible says that, I love some translations don't say four men, they say some men. It's almost like they don't name these guys. These are not headline grabbers. These are not people who are like, whoa, look at those guys. No, just some men carried their friend in. Ordinary, average, wild, faith-filled, expectant, somebodies, anybody's, nobodies. Some men, some women. And I, as I read that, I started to think about maybe, imagine if some people who started to understand this idea that we're doorkeepers, we start to reframe our existence. We just to say, I'm to some teachers Got together. Some artists, some accountants, some praying moms, some praying friends, some designers, some, some business people, got, some creatives got together and saw the kingdom of God come. I thank God for some friends who prayed for my wife. My wife was a lady who did not grow up in the church, did not grow up in the Christian faith, and in her own testimony will tell us that she, her heart was hard towards the things of God. But there were some friends who prayed for her with faith week in and week out. I can't even tell you all their names. But I can tell you there were some friends who were praying for her. And on, at, at the age of 18, they led her to the Lord on a field in George. Can you believe it? Even good things happen in George. But let me tell you, in that moment, as they, some friends, doorkeepers of the presence of God, they were praying, and they contended, then they spoke with courage and opened the door as little as they could. But then Fiona saw not them, but saw Jesus through the door and said, "Why wow, I want that. And let me tell you, her legacy was changed. Because of her, her sister came to faith. Because of her, her mother came to faith. Because of her, she got to marry me. Wow, praise the Lord. But our children now are not not raised in a different broken home, but raised in a home that has seen Jesus. And legacies have changed. Why? I tell you, because of some friends. Just some friends who are doorkeepers to the presence of God. And this is why I love that we are called to do this. And I love the reality. It says this. They looked at the crowd, and they didn't go, oh, well, obstacles are too big, huh? Oh, we looked at, looked at our friends and go, oh, they'll never come to you. We looked at our workspace and say, that place, is just a, it's a, a hellhole. They don't want anything to do with it. I don't, I don't even want to go there on a Monday. Oh. No, no, they saw the crowd, and they lifted their eyes, and they climbed on the roof. I just love this faith, this faith. And the Scriptures say, they dug a hole in the roof above his head. Now, it's just a quick line, but that's where one thing I think Mark could have got a little bit more violent with his translation. Because let me tell you, if somebody was on this roof, and they just dug a hole in the roof... It's not just, I just dug a hole in the roof. They literally were ripping the roof apart. Can you imagine, church, right now, that that, that, that chandelier starts to get unhinged? It's what a service, people. I you know, just keep preaching, and Jesus keeps preaching, and chandeliers are falling, and clay, pictures are shaking off the wall. His friends are ripping through the roof to get a paralyzed man on a mat, a big enough hole. It's not just a little gap. They're ripping the roof off. This is violent. This is faith. This is some men who say, we want to be doorkeepers so people can see Jesus. And I love the reality as they start to do that. They ripped off the roof. And let me tell you, the Bible tells us, that the culture of the day, says that roofs were made out of clay tiles. They were laid on a mat of branches and grass, supported by wooden beams, and held together not by cement, but by manure. So quite literally, these people were digging through a whole lot of crap to get their friend to Jesus. And it's literally, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm off the hook for saying that word. But let me tell you that that is the reality, that actually a lot of us will stop short because we go, it's too much work, it's too messy. I don't want to get involved in that story. But actually, are we a people? We're some people who are going to get our hands dirty. We're not afraid to get involved in the crap of people's lives so that we can hold the door open as they can see Jesus. Is that too strong? Thank you. Because I believe this is what we're called to do. We're not called just to come to church. We're called to become the church. And it's time for that. The world is sick and tired of people saying, come to church, but we don't open the door for people to see Jesus. I don't want people to go, wow, your church is great, but never encounter him. And the greatest advert is the people who have encountered Jesus and say, have a look at him. I'll do anything. I'll, I'll, I'll dig through your mess. We want to see the prodigals come home. Secondly, when we open the doors, the doorkeepers start to open our lives up and with faith to show people Jesus. Let me tell you, another thing that will come your way is Protests. Not just prodigals coming home, but protests start to resound. You see, it says some of the teachers of religious law were sitting there seeing a miracle happen in front of their eyes, and they go, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Let me tell you, when we preach and when we respond to the grace of Jesus, when we live for Jesus, with expectation, not about our family background, not our ability to keep it all together, not ability to be ourselves free of darkness, but we trust the one who can lead us out. And we say, Jesus, is you. Despite my anxiety, I'm going to keep opening the way and show people. Look, no, don't look at me. Look at him. Let me tell you what will happen. When we do this, the enemy will get rattled, and the enemy will find his voice. And I believe, I tell you, if you've been in our church any length of time, we do not use this pulpit or, or our lives to be some moral grandstanding. Now, I want to tell you, I have points of view on things, on situations around the world. And can I tell you what my point of view is? It's the Bible, the Word of God. I'm trying not to be more complex than that. But let me tell you what I've given myself to be as a doorkeeper, not for people to see my opinions, not to see my moral grandstanding on what I think the world should be doing. I want to have been a doorkeeper so people can see Jesus. I've nailed my colors to mask. I want people not to see anything else but Jesus through my life. God forbid people hear me preach and go, wow, I knew that was our stance on that thing. That's wonderful. Now there's a place for that, and we're not shy of an opinion, and we believe it, and we'll preach it. But I do that so people will see Jesus. This is the incredible reality because I know that it's the name of Jesus that causes the enemy to scatter. Not my well-formed theology. Not my well-formed point of view. It's the name of Jesus. The, the, The demons encountered some seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts who tried to to do it their own way, tried to maneuver the presence of God for their own ends, like like the Ark of the Covenant, tried to make it their own agenda so it would work for them. But actually, this is what the demons said to them. They said, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And and, and this is the reality, actually. It's not our own ability to throw this up. It's actually our ability to say, we trust Jesus. This is who we are. This is our faith. And this is the incredible reality. I want to keep reminding you and I, and I need to get this into my own fickle heart, is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. This whole setup is about Jesus. My whole life is to be a doorkeeper so people see Jesus. David and Goliath, what a great story. But let me tell you, David is not a version of you trying to take on your big challenges, and if you really try hard enough and swing hard enough, you'll be able to slay the Goliath in your life. Go, David. No. The better reading of that is that Jesus is David. David who took down the enemy, Goliath, and if you wanna know, you see yourself in that narrative, let me tell you who you and I are. We have scared brothers hiding in the field, watching David before, and going, we won, woo! That's who we are, yay! Let me tell you, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's always been, and it'll always be, it's, he's on every single page, he's, and he needs to burn our hearts, and that's what we have to show people. I preach Christ, and Christ crucified, because let me tell you, the whole Bible's about him. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is our Passover lamb. In the book of Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet unto the like of Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's our judge and our defender. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. And We need to see Jesus on every single page. The reality is 1 in 2 Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. The reality in Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's a rebuilder of the broken walls. In Esther, he's our Mordecai who stands in our gap and comes to our defense in the book of Job he's our day spring from on high in Psalms he's the Lord our shepherd in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes he's our wisdom this is who Jesus is we've got to get a glimpse he's on every single page in Isaiah and Song of Songs he's the he's the lover of our souls in Isaiah he is our, he is the the prince of peace in Lamentations he's the weeping prophet in Jeremiah he's our righteous branch I could go on and on and on but for time's sake I want to tell you he's on every single page do you believe me Jesus is burning through the Bible Oh, you don't believe me. In Matthew, he is the Messiah. In Mark, he's the miracle worker. In Luke, he's the son of man. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he's the one who gives the Holy Ghost and fire. In Romans, he's our justifier. In Galatians, he's the breaker of the curse of the law. In Ephesians, he's every spiritual blessing he pours out from heaven. In Philippians, he's our joy, no matter the circumstance. In Colossians, he's the supremacy of Christ. We could go on and on and on. He is on every page, and you have to show him that he's on every day of our lives. He's in every situation. We have to show Christ. This is who Jesus is, and I want to tell you that we have to burn for this. We have to burn for Jesus, because I'm telling you, if you're not burning for Jesus, people aren't seeing him in your life. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than live in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather do this. This is what I've been called to do, and let me tell you, when we open the door of our life a little bit, and we start to show people Jesus, and we start to give them a little bit more faith, and say, Jesus, have a look look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Look at him. Look at him. Let me tell you, prodigals come home. The enemy will start to be shaken. Protests will happen. And thirdly, I want to tell you, praise starts to burn in our hearts. And the people of God, praise will become your language. Because this narrative finishes and tells us, it says that they they were so amazed at this healing that took place. It says that they all start to praise Him. And they said, we have never seen anything like this before. It's almost like a Coke bottle being shaken. I think a lot of our services are like this, that actually we, we, we shake the Coke bottle and we worship and we like encounter Jesus I'm go, yes, that's amazing, it shakes. Wow, God, you're doing such great, but we, we're just shaken, but nothing changes. No one else gets to see him. No one else gets to encounter him because it's another servant, another week, just shake, yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you, Jesus. And actually the problem with the church worldwide is there's a lot of stirring, a lot of shaking, a lot of great meetings happening, people going, wow. But no one is opening up their lives to, and express their praise to Jesus and let it out. And actually what happens with Coke when it's been shaken for a lot but given no expression, it goes flat. I love the church is flat because it's not allowing the people to see the presence of God. But actually we call just to open it up a little bit, open up a little bit and actually pour out of praise. There you go, Thornton. Bless you. Just seeing if row two there is awake. Okay? <laughs> but let me tell you, I really believe, I want to encourage you That this is how it starts for us, as we open the door a little bit, open your heart, open your voice, you start praising Him. It's pray the worship and praise is not a personality type. I'm not expressive. No, it's not. It's a revelation of Jesus. If you've seen Him, you'll praise Him. Try. If you've seen Him, you will lift your hands. You will shout. I've seen people go wild. And I went to a church once, and somebody was going wild in the corner in worship, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Come on! Can someone calm that person down?" Until somebody came to me, I was like, it's distracting. And the guy I said, tell me their story. I was like, oh. And the person came loud. let me tell you, they were just set free from drugs. They've just encountered Jesus. They radically changed. Their lives are different. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. They should be worshiping more wildly. Because actually they were dead, now they're alive. This is the reality. You see, in Mark chapter 6, in Mark 2, we find Jesus goes home to Capernaum. This is this, this, this new home, this fishing village, this home. And they're, they're amazed and they worship him. In Mark chapter 6, four chapters later, he goes to his, his original home, his cultural home of Nazareth, and when he gets there, he meets a different expression. The reality is that they go there, and people are, they're cynical, and they watch there, and they go, Jesus, that's wonderful miracles, but isn't that Joseph's son? And they try and rationalize, it and they go, yeah, we're not going to get too excited about that. Chapter 2 ends with this, they were amazed and praised God. Chapter 6, with their unbelief, it says this, Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. Would you rather have Jesus amazed that you, that you saw me and you didn't believe me? You had glimpses of me and you never took steps of faith. I'm amazed that you didn't, didn't take steps of faith and trust me. Or would you rather us get amazed at him and say, we're going to praise him. We're going to praise him and trust him. We're going to open up that lid a little bit. Let me tell you, this is the pattern, not just of this scripture, it's the pattern of the Bible. That actually, when we open the door, prodigals return. That The enemy starts to get rattled and that praise started to erupt. Luke chapter 15, the great parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, I'm told the prodigal son runs far from home, spends all that he has on loose living, gets to the very end of himself. But the whole time, we find that actually the story is not about the prodigal son who's gone far, it's about a prodigal father, the father who's standing there looking for the prodigal son, who's on the porch every single day looking for the faintest glimpse of his return. His eyes are fixed, waiting for him to come home. And at the merest sight of him, we told that the father hikes up his traditional dress and sprints down the road, not with a finger and a moral grandstanding, what have you done, where did you spend the money, where have you been? No, but with arms outstretched saying, welcome home, my boy. Welcome home, my boy. And prodigals return as soon as the moment the door is open for prodigals to come home. What happens very next is the protest starts. The older brother comes and says, that's not fair. I've been here all the time, and why are you giving him such fanfare? What is happening? I've been towing the line. And protests start to come in this moment, but actually the Father starts to explain to him, saying, all that I've had has always been yours, always been yours, but you've closed the doors time for you to open the doors, allow the brother to come home. I and mean, then this is the thing, an amazing story ends and culminates in a party, in praise. As he says, kill the fattened calf. Put the robe on his shoulders. Put the ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Let's see Let's Crank up the band. Turn it up. Top notch. Let's go. Put on the dancing shoes. Why? Because the son who was dead is now alive. He who is lost is now found, and praise erupts. The prodigals return home. The protests come, but let me tell you, the praise will always have the final word. Let me tell you this as we land, and I call the band up just to help us land this moment, if that's all right. Is this reality? I'm calling us to be a people, some people, ordinary people, who will choose to tear the roof off of our faith in this moment so that other people see God. Doorkeepers. who say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than, than anything else in this world. That nothing else is going to distract me. My life, my business, my family, my relationship, my finances, I'm going to open the door so people can see Jesus. Tear the roof off. Tear the roof off on your expectations of people to come home. Tear the roof off on actually what God wants to do for to push back the enemy in your life. Tear the roof off of your praise and start to give voice to it, give vent to it, and allow God to speak through you as you give Him praise in the darkest night. I know that the, my greatest time of when I've been praying is when my life is looking darkest. That actually, when I start to praise despite the how I feel and say, God, I trust you, that's more powerful than when I'm on the mountaintop. we got to be a people who, who trust Him. But here's my courage for you and I tonight. It's not in our ability, as I told you. It's always been and always will be about Jesus. Because the scripture tells us, the prophet Isaiah said, God, would you rend the heavens? Would you tear the heavens? Would you rip open the heavens and come down? And Jesus did. Let me tell you, as Uzzah came and he touched the ark and he died because earth touched heaven illegitimately. Let me tell you what happened when heaven came and touched earth legitimately. Jesus died on our behalf. He died on our behalf as heaven encountered earth. Let me tell you the amazing reality is the heavens were ripped open. As Jesus died on the cross, we're told that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. It was ripped open. The curtain that separated God and man was ripped and said, the way is open. And the body of Jesus, he died on the cross. we told that his body, the final veil, the one the, his flesh, as Hebrew says, was torn, was ripped. So prodigals like you and me who are undeserving, who have no, no, no hope in our own accord, who our family lines are so broken, our history is so wretched, our story is so broken, our, our, the oppression of the world is too much, we cannot bear the weight, the darkness of our situation is too much, but, but He ran the heavens, He opened the veil, He tore His body so we could come home. That was an amazing sermon. If you would like to find out what your next step is, why don't you go to our website, lifechanges.org.za or... Follow us on social media to find out about what is happening in the life of our church. Life Changes Church, we love you. Have an amazing, amazing week.